I do think the faith that's come before us has a lot to teach us. Um, I do believe tradition is the franchise of the dead. I mean, he talked about this religionless Christianity, and I don't think he meant there that people there wouldn't be a church or, uh, or anything like that. But I mean, I think he meant a more worldly form of the people of God, no less Christ-centered or spiritual, but much more um, being in solidarity with the world. I mean, not being swallowed up by it. Each other. So I do think there's some creative models in the past, uh, but I don't think it should be one of, you know, both of us had a little suspicion that part of what was behind this article was we need the Benedictine rule uh, because we're not comfortable with some of the moral morality of this day and age. And somehow we can get people to behave better if they live in common life. And um, the Benedictine rule actually bears witness to the fact that people living together are going to have problems. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today we are going to talk about something different than we talked about last time. Correct? <laughs> Which is hopefully what we do every time. <laughs> We've done part twos. We've done part twos, right. And maybe there's only two or three things we ever say in different ways. I don't know. Well, we're going to talk about what's being called today... The Benedict option. And we're not talking about breakfast <laughs> orders. Right. Yeah. Could you get that at Denny's? Could you get Eggs Benedict? I don't think so. But it's been a long time since I've been to Denny's. I always like the moon over my hammy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like breakfast. Um, yeah, there's uh, been a call in certain circles um, to, to consider um, a some sort of Protestant form of the rule of St. Benedict. Um, so chastity's out. <laughs> well, uh, what, we're taking that one out of it from the beginning? Well, I mean, they're Protestants. I mean, if you're going to oh, repopulate, right. I mean, I, I'm thinking it's got to be, pro but other than that. Well, well, actually, yeah. I mean, the rule of Benedict is attributed to Benedict of Nursia, who lived, was born in the late uh, 5th century in the 400s, died uh, a little bit after 550 uh, in the common era, um, like a lot of people in that, uh, faithful people who wanted to be serious about their faith and in the midst of the collapsing, um, you know, the last, technically the last Roman emperor uh, was dethroned during his lifetime. <clears throat> but they sought a life of contemplation. They sought a life of, um, of serious ascetic living. By that, they about the best way to um, get to heaven, the best way to encounter God was to you know, live a life of simplicity uh, where you kept your body and your appetites under control. Uh, he started out his life living in a hermitage. Um, and one of my favorite stories about him was that people 
started noticing his piety. And so this kind of disorganized group of monks invite him to come and help straighten them out. But they didn't like what he was doing. And the story goes, I think this is in Gregory the Great, uh, Life of, of Benedict, uh, they tried to poison him. And uh, God, you know, he discerned that they had uh, poisoned his food. So he said, well, if you don't want me to lead you, I'm leaving. And uh, Was that like... The first step at confrontation? I mean, I would think there are some things like, hey, could we negotiate the rigors a little time? I mean, was, wow, poison. That seems extreme. Like, you're, you can fire your personal trainer. You don't have to poison right. them. I mean, that, that <laughs> seems to be extreme. But many of us have been at church meetings similar. So, <laughs> yeah. Sure. And maybe these guys did need to be cleaned up. If poisoning is their method of conflict management, I mean, they probably needed it. Yeah. Well, uh, the rule of Benedict, which is attributed to him, uh, is not really uh, popularized uh, until Gregory the Great writes about him uh, fifty or almost fifty years after he died, and it really doesn't become popularly used until Charlemagne's reforms uh, and the heirs of Charlemagne's reforms in the uh, the ninth century, uh, and after that, uh, what made it so popular and was that it was kind of brilliant in its simplicities. What it called for was a shared life, a life that was marked by prayer and work, physical work. You basically made three vows. You vowed to be obedient to the abbot, as if you would be obedient to God. Um, you made, you did a vow of, of chastity and a vow of poverty. Uh, you also committed that you would, once you came to that place, you stayed. In other words, you, it was a kind of, you also made a commitment to permanence. And uh, the whole life of the Benedictine rule is to protect each other um, as you, you know, come together fighting the good fight of faith. And also it was seen to be a kind of a more gentle approach to the spiritual life and some of the other options out there. And it was probably... Uh, Bernard McGinn, one of the great uh, church historians of uh, of the last century, and I think he's still alive now, um, said that it was probably the most important Christian document next to the Bible for 1,200 years and easily one of the most influential documents of all time. So why do you think people are wanting to resurrect this kind of vision, especially among Protestants. I mean, it's interesting because it's a, it's not part of the like DNA strand. I mean, that doesn't mean you can't graph things in, but I mean, but it is an interesting move that, that all of a sudden there's this interest in, in, is, 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 you think some of it is like the feeling that, okay, the sky is falling just like in antiquity at the time Benedict yeah. was kind of around you know, things were teetering, the sky was falling. We feel like we're in a similar kind of, you know, moment now, people are saying, and that's why this option. Yeah, I, I, that, I think as I've read people, um, and some of the articles actually you've referred me to, you know, they, they see a parallel um, um, in the impending dark ages, which is, um, you know, Benedict lived in the front end of that. And really, a lot of civilization, a lot of culture, a lot of spiritual life were maintained in these little Benedictine outposts throughout Western Europe. Um, and so I think for some people, they see, you know, 
Christianity is in decline, at least it is in the West and in the Northern Hemisphere. And they see civilization is in decline, at least, you know, a Judeo-Christian morally based civilization. So I think that's where they're drawn as parallel. How do we create these little pockets of uh, faith, of spiritual discipline, of community? How do we um, maintain the faith in the midst of this uh, onslaught, if you would, of whatever you want to call it, secularism, post-modernity, post-Christendom? I think that's... Kardashianism. (laughs) I think that's where the impulse is coming from. So do you... So, all right, no, you're... Academic specialty is in history. Uh, so, like, as a historian, but as also someone who is a practitioner and someone that has skin in the game, as they say, for communal religious life. You know, you're a, a, you're not just a, uh, a hair club for members. I mean, heck, you know, I'm not just a member, president, I'm a client, whatever. You're not just a a person that's uh, disinterested, you're interested as a practitioner, as a Christian, as an activist, but also you're a historian. I mean, so how do you gel all that together? Well, I, I'm the faith that's come before us has a lot to teach us. Um, I do believe tradition is the franchise of the dead. I mean, I think we should listen and look at what different, I mean, I mean the, the rule of Benedict is not, a particularly uh, theologically profound document. It's not a deep spiritual treatise. It's kind of a methodology. It's a way of it's it's a strategy on how do you, um, how do we share our lives together and um, and grow in faith. I mean, I, in reality, there have been multiple attempts. Bonhoeffer in you know the the uh, the underground seminary. I mean, life together is a kind of um, a 20th century attempt to reorder life around some common uh, common principles. So I, I think the instinct to do it, uh, to look at it, is is not a bad one. It's a good one. I, I just think you know, with anything, we ha- we we just you as you said, it's not in our DNA, and in some levels, um, the whole Protestant Reformation throughout any kind of sense of monasticism um, that, you know, every Christian life was to be a monastic life and the Christian home was to be the new monastery. And, you know, that, yeah, I, I don't know if that's worked out the way that uh, Luther and the reformers envisioned. Well, I mean, my home is like a monastery. I mean, I mean, I don't know how it is for other people, but now, uh, now, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up Bonhoeffer because I, I think Bonhoeffer uh, had he lived, I think would would have continued to be a leading light, especially on these kinds of issues. You know, he talks about a vision in, in letters and papers from prison, written you know while he's waiting to be executed for his role in the conspiracy plot against Hitler. I mean, he talked about this religionless Christianity, and I don't think he meant there that. People, there wouldn't be a church or, uh, or anything like that. But I mean, I think he meant a wor- more worldly form of the people of God, no less Christ-centered or spiritual, but much more um, being in solidarity with the world. I mean, not being swallowed up by it, right. but being in solidarity. I even think of like Pope Francis seems to to, to embody this. Here's somebody that's prophetic, 
he's he's not sanguine about our age. He doesn't think. In fact, he's been critical of the excesses of global capitalism, the, the things that's done to the environment, lots of things. But yet, he's not dour, and he's no. not a guy that is pushing for this harsh boundary between the church and the world. And if anything, it, it seems like Francis is trying to make the the boundary a little more permeable. Yeah, I, no, and I think. You know, there never was one way to do things. And I actually think Protestant communities would benefit from from lively people who have chosen a religious life to live together. I I, I always, um, you know, a couple of times I mean, in my own life, you know, I've experimented with kind of attempts at living in an intentional community, supporting that. And I always thought, uh, you know, as a parish pastor, particularly at a larger church, working with multiple missions, it would have been great to have some intentional community, uh, whether it be through students or whatever. But part of the problem, you know, what's the impulse? What do you think the impulse is that's fueling some of this um, interest in the the Benedictine option, as it's called? Yeah, I think it's um, historical parochialism. Uh, And what I mean by that is one of the pieces that we both read was from a guy named Rod Dreyer in an interview in First Things. And really, the hero for him is, is, is not Benedict. It's a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, who was kind of a Marxist who became, you know, was really reading philosophy, reading Aristotle, reading Aquinas, and became a, a, a Christian. Right. He's an observant Roman Catholic. And McIntyre kind of thought that, well, hey, pre-modernity, especially a kind of Aristotelian... Catholic vision of the good life with virtues and character and a view of the world as a certain picture of created good, all this stuff, good stuff after that, bad. Mm-hmm. And basically we're just living in this uniquely, uh, you know, unscrupulous age where you can't really do much moral philosophy. You can't really, basically we're in an age that produces worse people than most ages that we could ever conceive of because of philosophical problems and that sort of thing. And I think that that's just, that just does not strike me as true. I, mean, I think that we have unique challenges and unique promise. I mean, I think there are some things about being a 21st century person in Western culture that are really challenging. I mean, I, re- I remember a um, a professor of mine in seminary who taught who taught global ethics saying, like, I think it was in the late 60s or something, he was in a dialogue between pastors who were um, – and some thinkers who were behind the Iron Curtain and pastors in the West. And the pastors in the West, their first question was, how can you, I mean, how can you be a Christian in communism? And their first, our first question was, how can you be a faithful Christian in the midst of capitalism? Like, <laughs> like you know, but there are all these different burdens. And so I think that, that I just am, I'm so resistant to like the, the sky is, it's, it's funny, even when the sky is falling, Right now, I'm like one of my favorite shows is The Walking Dead, and it's gotten. I think this season, it's kind of got. I've really liked this season a lot, but and this is a zombie apocalypse, and even in the zombie apocalypse, you see that the sky hasn't completely fallen. People can still live a life of love and meaning, and and in fact, some of the show is like people that either the problem are people that don't realize that something different has happened, and then people that think because something 
unique and cataclysmic that everything's changed and not everything has changed. Right. And so I think some of that is like some of the impulse I think is, is one that, that is, is walks by sight and not by faith. And, and by sight, I think that might be visually impaired. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always a little leery of, of kind of lifting up classic virtues. Although I do, I, I mean, I'm, pretty sympathetic to a Thomistic kind of approach to things. But well, I always think of you know, the great uh, philosopher emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who was able to walk unperturbed through this world, including walking past the Colosseum with all the games being held and could rise above the immorality that was happening around him that he could actually have stopped if he chose to do. So, um, but I, I do, I actually do think the sky is falling and I think we, uh, but I'm not sure what all that means. I mean, I we know that there's radical change happening in uh, institutional Christianity. Uh, let's just talk about this country. I mean, we don't have to talk about anywhere else. I mean, I think things are really changing. You have, um, um, you know, again, the megachurch phenomena is what it is. But, you know, your average congregations are getting smaller. And you have a lot of these kind of pockets and. I do think a kind of um, an ordering one's religious life around prayer. Um, you know, I, I'm working with a small church right now that's, that's trying to, uh, you know, we're trying to do a, a redevelopment. And what strikes me is they have this shared life together. It's, it's, there's been a group of them have come together, and they've, they actually have made a vow <laughs> unintentionally uh, or not explicitly of trying to keep this church together, and they share their lives together. Uh, they have their own, they form their own kind of corporate rituals that um, I think when, it, if I'd have been here when I was, you know, 20 years ago, when I was trying to change everything, my initial reaction would have been, okay, this is, none of this is working. We need to change it. But I've I've tried to take a step back, and I do see the value within their internal life, interior life, uh, we do have to make some changes there, but I, I think that this idea of of having a, a religious communities and that's you know our congregations that come together more intentionally around prayer. I think economically, I mean, the Benedictine uh, monastery was an economic system, uh, and, and so I do think. I, I mean, I know some folks now who do these things, not necessarily based on on religious uh, principles. But some millennials who are just saying, you know, their opportunities aren't there for them, or they're saying no to the rampant materialism and living shared lives. Uh, in some levels, they've already made a commitment of community and of a commerce with each other. So I do think there's some creative models in the past, uh, but I don't think it should be one of, you know, both of us had a little suspicion that part of what was behind this article was we need the Benedictine rule. Uh, because we're not comfortable with some of the moral morality of this day and age, and somehow we can get people to behave better if they live in common life. And um, the Benedictine rule actually bears witness to the fact that people living together are going to have problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I think is that on on some level, you know, the I think the nature of Christian religious experience at its best is extrinsic. 
it points away from itself. And so, I mean, if you look at American religious history, the whole modernist fundamentalist controversy where a certain kind of inerrant Bible was important, it was as if, if we can just point you to this inerrant Bible, everything will, will come together. And I think on some level, no, I think that obscures the one that the Bible points witness to. And I think the same thing about the church, that, that the church is best when it gets out of the way of its head, when it kind of, when it, it kind of, it, it, when we fade away and, 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 and you see more of Jesus. This is what I think is fascinating about Pope Francis. He's a guy that he's the head of this huge religious institution. He was always sort of demystifying the institution, pointing away, pointing to Jesus. Who am I to judge? And I think on some level, I, I, I fun, I just get nervous at the impulse, like of a kind of muscular, uh, religiosity whether it's a kind of muscular bible if we just if we just convince everybody that you know anybody can see the bible's in there even that the leather's genuine everything will be okay right. or if we could just have this new benedict 2.0 character amped up church then everything would be okay and and, and god would get back on the th- all that stuff seems to me uh mis- misguided to some degree well I, two things though i do think that we can can take from the Benedictine order um, and Benedictine rule. And I think it's worth reading. If you haven't read it, it's worth reading. It's not that, not that long. Um, I think, first of all, what they tried to create uh, in, the, in the monastic community was kind of a school of humility. Matter of fact, the closest thing within the, the uh, I guess there's, I think, 70 little chapters in the book is this idea of the stages of humility. And I, I think... For me, we enter into the faith through humility. We we receive grace the more you know open to humility, and we're better in our life together with each other if we walk humbly before God and with each other. And 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 I actually think that there's a lot to be said there. And you know that you know uh, you don't necessarily have to. We don't have to take a vow of obedience, but I think we do need to take a vow of, of forbearance to allow there to be room for each of us in, in the step of humility. The other thing is just the life of prayer. I mean, these folks spent hours in prayer. I mean, they did seven, eight offices. Uh, sometimes they'd add some. And when they weren't working and they weren't praying officially in the daily offices, uh, which were seven different hours of prayer throughout the day, sometimes they added an eighth one, then there was spirit time for spiritual reading and personal prayer as well. I, I do think that, um, you know, I, I get a little nervous sometimes about a purely missional approach to Christianity because I, I think there needs to be an ebb and flow. I think, uh, you know, the model of the Irish monasteries that some of them use the Benedictine rule, but this idea of they would send their, uh, they would send their, their brothers out to do evangelism, start new communities, uh, but then they would come back in and be refreshed with their life together. I mean, maybe we, you know, part of the problem is what are we doing on Sunday mornings and throughout the week? But I do think this idea of that the Christian life is both interior and, but from then, but it's never, you know, and it's exterior, but it has to constantly, I mean, to me, that's what loving God and loving neighbor in some levels is always that balance between, you know, the devotional life and the active life. Um, I mean, the, the downfall of the Benedictine order on some levels was that it wanted to lift up this kind of, of um, the contemplative life over and against 
the active life. And that's certainly a good bit of the gospel when they do that. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, that it, it's, it's interesting because it all comes back to the walking dead for me. Cause this is, I have a one track post-apocalyptic <laughs> mind right now, but it's interesting because they're always struggling with the impulse to survive versus the impulse to sort of, what do they do when they encounter other people? And they have some really bad, and the, the thing in the walking dead that's really scary are not the zombies. It's other people. Right. It's the, it's the way sort of when the wheels come off, you know, these kind of weird tribal societies, they broke. but like this whole tension between retaining your humanity. And part of it is an interior cultivation of trust in, in, in the people in the storyline that builds and grows. And they're very suspicious when they meet new people. And yet, they they never quite stop taking new people in and being able to, and I think that's part of the. I think you're right about that careful sort of, uh, and it's not fifty fifty. It's hundred hundred, right? I mean, there's this this right. that 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 kind of yeah, loving God and loving the world He's made and our brothers and sisters in it. I think that somehow um, is always a careful dancing act. Yeah, and we do. We live in a dangerous time. Benedict lived in a very dangerous time, and these monasteries were often—I um, guess, if you would—they were prophetic. The fact that they existed were prophetic statements that you can live a different way. You can live a life of commitment, of discipline, of self-denial, uh, a life of love and humility in a world that had gone crazy. Um, if, if that's part of what the Benedictine option is looking to address, then I think we need uh, to mine all the wealth of the history of the faith to live in this dangerous time we live in. Smell so 
Oh 